<laughs> Hello and welcome to the fourth season of God in Film. Applause, applause, applause. The <laughs> podcast where a Christian and atheist dive into the best that cinema has to offer and see if we can find any parallels with the gospel or any other Bible stories. I'm filmmaker and semi-professional demon slayer, Giles Goff. And I'm filmmaker and possessed ten-year-old, Phil Colvin. <laughs> it's a good one, that. And for our fourth season, we're taking a turn for the terrible as we focus our attention on horror films. <laughs> now... Horror has always been an important genre for filmmakers as they tend to be able to turn a profit without necessarily having big name stars or astronomical budgets attached. They've often been the starting place for a lot of innovation in cinema. So to kick off this mini season of God in Film, we're going to turn our attention to The Exorcist, the seminal 1973 horror film directed by William Friedkin and written by William Peter Blatty. This is a movie that is indelibly etched on the face of cinema. So, Phil, what did you think of it? I first watched this film uh, back when I was in high school. <laughs> I remember sort of laughing at first, I think because the the sort of the, the deeper subject matter didn't really strike me at the start. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I was all just kind of like, ha, 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 person said something about, like, you know, sexy things, lol. You know, like, it just, it, I, was, I wasn't really the target audience for it, I think, at the time. Mm. Um, I, but since re-watching it... Um, I've seen, a, I've definitely seen a, a different sort of side of it. Um, yeah, one that's, I feel, really, really captures total tension and terror. You know, like mm-hmm. especially with the performances from all the actors as well. Uh, the guy who plays Father Karras, whose name completely escaped me. I looked it up earlier. Um, I thought he was great. He just seems like yeah. he, he just seems worried, just like as a as as just just as a a base level emotion for him at all points. <laughs> you know? Like man wakes up and he's like, oh no, you know, like it's it's um it's really good. Um, I think the visuals are stunning as well, and the the, the practical aspects of it all just make this film timeless. And yeah, I just yeah, I, it's great watching films like this. You you, it's great going back to something that isn't a CGI gore fest, you know what mm. I mean? And seeing something that really deals with tension and terror correctly. Yeah. I think one of the things I wasn't prepared for was like just how long this film is, you know? I was like, okay, can we can we please get to the possessed little girl now, you know? Like let's <laughs> let's get cracking on. I've I've got places to be here, guys. I think, you know? I think the thing I like about this film, for on that topic though as well, is that it feels mm-hmm. like not just like a horror film, but it feels like a mystery as well. Yeah, like it, it's almost sort of like <laughs> there's plenty of times when some of the characters are like, right, and I know that obviously you're saying she's possessed. Are you sure? <laughs> because <laughs> we do have things like mental illness concerns that you know we mm. didn't have back in the 16th century. You know what I mean? So, yeah, but I remember that line quite quite vividly, and I was just like, "Oh, that's so good!" You know, <laughs> like you would say that as well. You know? Yeah. See, the funny thing you said you saw it in school. For me, I wasn't physically able to see it in school because the BBFC had a ban on it for about like 25 years. No, oh, we love that. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so they only they they lifted the ban in like 99 something like that by which time i was already in college i forgot that that was even a thing i watch it now as like a 31 year old and think it's not that bad (laughs) but then again i'm i've I've seen quite a lot of films now so i guess my i guess 
I guess I made a lot of films, so I guess my um, my view of it is a little bit more uh, desensitized. That was the word I was looking for. That sort of brings me on to another interesting point. Before we go any further, I just wanted to address something head on, as I think it's an important question and one that that rears its head from time to time. So the question is: Should Christians watch horror films? Yes. Oh. Great. I'm glad we're in agreement. Like. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd just save you some time on that score. So horror as a genre is just as valid as uh, any genre of cinema. It's been a, a rich area of study for film theorists over the decades. And from horror films, we can learn so much about uh, society's anxieties and attitudes towards things like race, like in Night mm. of the Living Dead, or gender, such as the, in the Halloween films, or sex in films like It Follows. Hell, even in the Scream films, it teaches us about society's attitudes towards horror films. I think if you can read the subtext of horror films across the ages, you can basically have like like a historical barometer for what people were really afraid of back then. You yeah. know what I mean? I think that's a really good way of cataloging the biography of fear across the years. I love that. I'd love to watch more older cinema just to see oh so they were afraid of this back in the 60s you know what I mean yeah like, I think that's just so cool horror is incredibly important as an element of film and whilst the lows can be very low the highs yeah. can be very high just, every every genre has got their sort of like what, damp squibs aren't they so yeah that's that's exactly what I was gonna say it's just like every every aspect of every element of cinema you know yeah of course that said it needs to be acknowledged that watching a film with horrific scenes in it can impact on your mental health. I mean, you can't unsee what you've seen after all. So for me, I'd say that the decision as to whether a person should watch our film or not should ultimately rest with the individual within reason, of course, and age limits. Yeah. So in, in, this, in the same way that people have different tolerances for alcohol, it's important that you know your own limits and that you do what is right for you. Yeah, some, some subjects are just not palatable in the same way that some subjects are palatable. Yeah, exactly. Now it's time for... <gasps> Phil's Facts! Phil's Facts! Phil's Facts! Phil's Facts! Phil's Facts! Bam! <laughs> I'm going to do a different one, I think, this season. Or as many as I can okay. remember to do. <laughs> okay. I might miss some. So, Phil's Facts. It would help if Phil's had his facts in front of him. Um, so, we'll get the obvious out of the way. The Exorcist is a 1973 American supernatural horror film directed by William Friedkin and written for the screen by William Peter Blatty, based on his 1971 novel of the same name. It follows the demonic possession of a young girl and her mother's attempt to rescue her through an exorcism conducted by a pair of Catholic priests. Fact one. Mm -hmm. The scene where Reagan projectile vomits at Father Karras only required one take. The vomit was intended to hit Jason Miller in the chest, who plays Father Karras, um, mm -hmm. but the plastic tubing misfired and hit him in the face instead. <laughs> um, his reaction of shock and disgust whilst wiping away the vomit is genuine, and Miller admitted in an interview that he was very angered by this mistake. <laughs> which, which seems fair, you know. Yeah. 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 I mean, as a general rule, in the workplace... We try not to slap goo in people's face without them knowing about um, it. Unless they're on Get Your Own Back, if anyone remembers <laughs> that show. Like, you know, where people got gunged. Like, yeah. They've chosen that at that point, so it's fine. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, so actress Mercedes McCambridge, who provided mm -hmm. the voice of the demon, insisted on swallowing raw eggs and chain-smoking to alter her vocalisations. The actress, who had, who had had problems with alcohol abuse in the past, furthermore wanted to drink whiskey, as she knew alcohol would distort her voice even more, and create the crazed state of mind of the character. 
as she was giving up sobriety, she insisted that her priest be present to counsel her during the recording <laughs> process. At William Freakin's direction, McCambridge was also bound to a chair with pieces of a torn sheet at her neck, arms, wrists, legs and feet to get a more realistic sound of the demon struggling against its restraints. McCambridge later recalled the experience as one of horrific rage. While Friedkin admitted that her performance, as well as the extremes which the actress put herself through to gain authenticity, terrifies the director to this day. This was probably the reason why Friedkin declined to call back McCambridge to provide the demon's voice for the film TV version, instead deciding to do the voice himself. And I can't blame him. Do you know, it reminds me of the um, the anecdote. I think it's I think it's Dustin Hoffman and, and Laurence Olivier, you yeah. know, where, where sort of Hoffman's playing out like a homeless person. He says, I've been I've been trying to get in character, sleeping rough on the streets. I haven't had a shower in four days, I haven't had a proper meal. <laughs> in ages and Laurence Olivier just goes oh darling try acting it's much easier you know? <laughs> it's, like, it's just a film guys we don't need to make this any more complicated That's, than it actually is I've you got know? so much time for that sort of mindset just like darling please have you tried pretending it's kind of what we do <laughs> it's just hilarious yeah. man I love yeah. that oh poor fella he's just doing his little best did he you know <laughs> anywho um Director William Friedkin went to some extraordinary lengths to get realistic reactions from the cast. Mm-hmm. In an interview, Jason Miller stated that he had a major verbal confrontation with William Friedkin after the director fired a gun near his ear to get an yeah. authentic reaction from him. He told Friedkin that he's an actor and he didn't need a gun to act surprised or startled, funnily mm. enough. When Father Dyer has attempted to administer last rites to Father Karras, Freed King was not satisfied after several takes, so he took William O'Malley aside and asked, do you trust me? O'Malley said yes, just in time to get slapped right across the face. Freed King immediately then said, action, and the result in, is in the film. He even went so far as to put Linda Blair and Ellen Burstyn in harnesses and have crew members yank them violently at yeah. different parts. Which, right, okay, every, every director's got their methods, but I, I just can't, I don't think I agree. I yeah, I think I agree because it's because that's 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 just abuse, you know. Like, yeah. So, um, do you know Mark Kermode? Yes, the film critic. Yeah. 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 So, uh, he's like the absolute. Well, he's a god of film criticism, and he's also like a massive super fan when it comes to uh, The Exorcist. So yeah. he made a documentary, I think, called The Fear of God, like The, the Exorcist 25 Years On. Oh, yeah. Um, and he talked about this in particular, you know. And it, there's a, a line, I think Max von Sydow said something like, Friedkin acted as a man with total power because he had total power. Uh, you see um, William Friedkin there with the sort of black pole, the neck and the glasses, and he looked exactly like Garth Marenghi in it. Yes, and, yes. And, and talking about this stuff, and, and talking about how we didn't want actors. We wanted a priest that could that could act, and, and we wanted that authenticity. It's like, dude, just 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 hire actors. Yeah, just no, it's that's hire, kind of... hire an actor and hire one that you can trust, you know, because if, if you can't trust them to emote on camera... Then what are you doing? This is it. It's this why people train for years to become an yeah. actor so they can act startled and do it correctly. And if they can't, maybe get a different actor. <laughs> you know, like it just you know, doesn't seem difficult. But I find it concerning that the a film with like a, a ridiculously high number of deaths on it and a guy who just liked to shoot off guns every so often. That <laughs> seems like an uncomfortable correlation. It took to a me, minute for me know? to really palette what you just said. Then like just fancied firing off a gun every now. Oh, it's twelve fifteen. 
there to yeah. shoot off an AR. Literally, Max von Sydow would walk in and he'd talk to the special effects guys and he'd be like, "Hi, Bob, uh, where are the guns today? <laughs> you know, and he'd be like, well, there's one behind that that wall, there's one under the bed. And like, this is obviously not okay. Do you yeah, know like, what I mean? You know, it's, Max von Sydow's got to go on set and just be like, just so I don't completely cack my pants, can you just tell me yeah. where the rifles are hidden? Just, just, uh, you don't have to tell Will. Just, just. Just just tell me, mate. Like, I've got stuff on. Anyway. That said, talking about the slapping somebody across the face. Now, whilst I don't condone this at all, there's a similar story about Gerard Way trying to record the vocals for I'm Not Okay, and it's not it's not quite tortured enough. So I believe the sort of producer sort of comes up to him, gives him a hug, and then just punches him in the mouth, you know? So sometimes it works to get that particular emotive response. But if you keep doing this over and over again and you are somebody's boss, then this isn't creative freedom. This is an abusive workplace. Yeah, the slap, that I can sort of understand. But guns are guns. <laughs> They're just yeah. simply dangerous. Do you know what I mean? A person's guns. hand is guns only as dangerous. Guns are, in fact, guns. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Coleman P. <laughs> you, can, you can cite that one in your essays, guys. Anyway. Awesome. <laughs> uh, so, uh, the contortionist Anne Mills was hired to perform mm-hmm. the famous Spiderwalk scene, which was filmed yeah. in November 1972. Ms. Miles was able to perform the scene by use of a harness and flying wires hung above the staircase used on the set. She would advise Friedkin that when she was just barely touching the stairs of her hands and feet and then she maintained that light touch as she was moving down the staircase by the harness and wires that's what she she basically was like this will look the most ethereal do that um, mm-hmm. William Freakin deleted the scene before the film's December release he felt it was too much of an effect because it appeared so early on in the film he yeah. later admitted that another reason for omitting the scene was that the fact you could actually just still see the wires. But 30 years later, Freakin changed his mind and he added the scene back in for the extended 2000 edition mm-hmm. uh, with the wires digitally removed. Yeah, I watched that scene because I don't think it was in the version that I rented. So I watched it on YouTube and yeah, it's minging. <laughs> it's great. It's brilliant. But it's like, wow, nah. In 1985, when Joel Schumacher was filming St. Elmo's Fire from 1985 at Georgetown and attempted to get permission from the Jesuit priest faculty at that school to to film there, he was rejected. Mm-hmm. Schumacher complained to the faculty, saying, you let Bill Friedkin film The Exorcist here in 73, and one of the characters in that movie said, your mother stacks shells in Aldi. Now, obviously, we've, we've, we've edited that line. We might have changed that a little bit. I wonder if you can work out what it is. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's worse. Um, <laughs> Jesuit... Your mother stacks shells in Lidl. You know? Oh, oh come on, mate. Like, that's just too much. Like... <laughs> In reply to this, one of the Jesuit priests answered, Yes, but the devil didn't win in their movie. (laughs) (laughs) Which I just thought is just one of those things where I'm just like, yeah, I get it. Okay, fair enough. I think you're overstepping the mark there, Joel. The original teaser trailer, which consisted of nothing but images of the white-faced demon that usually sort of crops up in just tiny little freeze frames throughout the film, it was just that quickly flashing in out of darkness. And it was banned in, like, basically every theatre, as it was apparently deemed too frightening. And to be honest, I can see that, especially with the music in the background too. You can obviously tell it's somebody's face with makeup on, but it's still really creepy. Do you know what I mean? It's horrifying, yeah. It's horrifying. Apparently, this this isn't another fact that I've got, but it's just one that I remember reading. Apparently that particular face was a makeup test that they did for the demon face of uh, Uh, Linda Blair. But it was just a, it was a rejected one. But they thought, oh, we'll keep that for the the face of the actual demon rather than the possessed face. 
Nothing I'm glad goes to waste. Love it. Yeah, yeah. no. And final one. Uh, this just made me laugh, and I just had to include it because it made me it made me giggle. When originally released in the UK, a number of towns councils imposed a complete ban on the showing of the film, which led to the bizarre spectacle of Exorcist bus trips, where enterprising <laughs> travel companies organised buses to take groups to the nearest town where the film was showing. <laughs> Which is just astonishing. <laughs> like, of course, something being banned, but not everywhere, would, would to someone be like, I've got a great business idea, guys. Yeah. <laughs> I know what I'm doing next. <laughs> Only in Britain. Oh, man, that's funny. Anyway, that's me. That's me. Love it. Those are awesome. Thanks for those, Phil. No worries. Hey, guys, it's me, Claire. Jane Eyre Nerd and Godin Films Twisted Puppet Master, sneaking in to tell you that we've now got a Patreon page. If you'd like to support us, just look for the Godin Film Podcast on Patreon. There you can find the scripts for every episode and our special Godin Music Show, where Giles, Phil and Sefa Ahiaku Agri give us a rundown of the top ten mainstream songs with the Bible connection. Here's a quick clip. What's I supposed to do now? I've just watched my boss ascend. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I, might, I, may as, I may as well go grab a couple of cans from the office. Oh, the gospel according to Phil. Just, <laughs> uh, what can I say? That's just... To be fair, that is pretty much what the disciples did as well. The disciples were, were cowering in a, in a room in Jerusalem when Phil came in and said, Hiya, lads, I picked up a couple of tinnies. Yeah. Let's... <laughs> Don't worry, I got I got us some bloody Stella, but it's the it's the little Stella, a bit hard up at the moment. Oh dear! <laughs> if you'd like to support the podcast, your money will go towards the running costs of the show, and we'll be eternally grateful. But if you can't support us financially, that's fine too. It's a really tough time for a lot of people right now, so you can just help out by telling someone about the show or liking or sharing it on social media, because Charles and Phil really suck at self promotion. Claire, what are you doing? Nothing. <laughs> Now, Phil, when we talk about God stuff or things related to church culture, I can usually relate it to something else, usually Star Wars related, let's be honest. Yeah. But for what we're about to talk about, I can't find anything that's analogous to what it what it is. This is something that's so completely its own thing that there's no way of explaining it other than talking about what it is. And... We're going to talk about this with our guest today. I'm going to let him introduce himself. Hi, well, I'm uh, Tim Hillier. I am a parish priest in uh, the Diocese of Guildford. But as well as that, I am um, advisor to the Bishop of Guildford in what is often called deliverance ministry and the paranormal, which means I give advice to around 300 clergy across Surrey and northeast Hampshire um, for things that go bump in the night and all sorts of other paranormal uh, kind of stuff, really. Um, traditionally, this role was known as uh, a Darson exorcist. That does, um, on some occasions, happen, but very, very rarely. But I'd like to use that word deliverance rather than exorcist. Tim, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. So what drew you to this particular role? Okay, I think I want to go back about uh, 15, 16 years ago now. I was mm -hmm. preparing a sermon one Saturday morning and uh, the title of my sermon was Don't Mess With The Occult. So I'd come across quite a lot of occult involvement locally and I was preaching from uh, a passage from Acts on Simon the Sorcerer. Well, I'd been uh, writing for about three, three and a half hours and decided to take a break 
went out to the kitchen to make a cup of coffee and came back into my study about half an hour later to realise that my entire screen had been wiped, with the exception of the title, Don't Mess With The Occult. <laughs> now, as you do, it had been saved all the way through. Mm-hmm. Now, that kind of, uh, I guess, that spooked me a little bit. And I phoned up a dear friend of mine who I'd known for many years who um, had written a book on this area and actually just previously had been advisor to the Archbishop of Canterbury on this whole subject. And uh, I said to this friend, I described what had happened, and I said, what have you got to say? At which he laughed. I said, I don't find that very helpful, John. He said, no, I don't, didn't think you would. And he said, can I ask you a question? Before you tackled that subject this morning, did you lay hands on your computer? Did you pray for yourself? I said, no. He said, well, you will next time when you tackle a subject like this. Did you pray for your family? I said, well, no more than usual. You will next time. And he roared with laughter. And he said, look, I have a sense that some of the darker powers are kind of quite upset by what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And I would also suggest that maybe God is leading you into this kind of ministry. Well, I preached that sermon and then the following day, having rewritten it again. And two days later, I came back from my staff meeting. My wife said to me, uh, there's a lady on the uh, phone who has experienced what she described as poltergeist activity around her little baby. Oh, I'd wow. never encountered that before. Could mm-hmm. you come out? Well, I was completely out of my depth, but went out with my then curate and prayed with that person. It just seemed strange that I had preached on that subject two days earlier. The person hadn't been in church, and yet I was being called into that ministry within 48 hours. Well, we ministered to this little child, or rather to um, within the room, and the activity stopped. From then onwards, I guess I had a phone call probably every three or four weeks from someone somewhere around the parish asking for this kind of ministry. And it was just seemed that that ministry found me, or rather God called me into it. And some years later, the Bishop of Guildford, when he was looking for someone to head up this ministry and lead a multidisciplinary team in deliverance, asked me whether I'd head that up. So I did some formal training and I've been doing this job now for about eight years. Gosh, that's fascinating. I guess the question I've got is, what conditions would need to be met before you would consider doing an exorcism? First of all, I want to say that full exorcisms are really very rare. Mm -hmm. On average, in the Church of England, we would conduct three exorcisms or four exorcisms a year across the whole country. So it is incredibly rare. And I've only been involved in one exorcism over many, many years. And I've probably dealt with about two or three hundred cases. So mm-hmm. it's, it's incredibly, incredibly rare. So what kind of conditions would we expect? Well, first of all, we want to have some evidence that person had been involved in the occult, like heavily involved, maybe witchcraft or something similar to that. But before we did that, I'd also want to work with my psychiatrist who works with me. I've got a consultant psychiatrist in my team. Because some of the things that we're asked to look at um, probably have or may have mental health issues. So mm-hmm. we want to look at it in a multidisciplinary way. She's also a Christian. So we pray through it, we meet with the person concerned and with their minister. Um, and we will probably meet on several occasions before we reach the conclusion that here we've got a situation where this person has some level of possession. Right, okay. If that person were in that kind of state, we would assume, for instance, they'd lost a lot of their free will. 
we would probably assume that they had some kind of supernatural force or supernatural um, strength. That's often a sign that someone is possessed, mm-hmm. sometimes speaking in a strange voice. Although, again, that can be related to mental health issues. So it's, we would want to be really sure. And at that point, I would phone my boss, who's a bishop of Guildford, and say, do you know, I think in this situation, I need to perform a major exorcism. At that point, I would invite my colleague, a psychiatrist, to be with me. And she would pray with me too. So we would not sort of move into this easily. Uh, and we do it in a very methodical, prayerful way. So I'm guessing this is this is one of those areas where you really have to try and work through a process of elimination and make sure that there's no other possible way of... Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. That's exactly what we are doing. And... You know, when we're dealing with all sorts of paranormal activity, we're going through that process and we're looking at the factors that lead to it, whether there are pre-existing mental health issues, whether the issues are related to the person or the place. That's a really significant thing that we're looking at. But in the case of exorcism, uh, there would have to be a number of conditions met. It's a lot more usual to find people who have become oppressed with spiritual forces. And probably each year I will minister maybe to 10 or 15 people who have clearly a level of oppression which has come as a result of involvement in in, in the occult, but not probably as heavily as would be the case if one was conducting a major exorcism. So working on from that then, what does a real life major exorcism look like? Okay. Well, I could give you a textbook example, uh, but I could also give you an example of the one that I was involved with some years ago. Um, The person concerned turned up at my door in the early hours of the morning. I knew, knew this person, and her face was contorted. And she was clearly disturbed, and I wasn't willing at that point to meet with her. It wouldn't, I think, have been safe. But I waited until I had a medical practitioner with me, who's also a Christian, didn't have a psychiatrist on call at that point. And we talked to her and we prayed with her and her face contorted. And she spoke in a voice that simply wasn't her own. Um, And at that point, um, I prayed a prayer of exorcism and temporarily she went unconscious. And uh, we prayed for her during that time. Uh, And then she came round about 10 minutes later, totally unaware of what had happened. It was very undramatic, actually. Fascinatingly, about uh, a month later, uh, it was Pentecost Sunday. She Mm -hmm. turned up in church and was filled with the Holy Spirit and um, went out in the Spirit. At the end of that whole process was totally, totally transformed and uh, is one of the most joyful, joyous Christians you'd want to meet. So there's there's an example. Um, But I'd want to say that is a very rare example. That's the only major exorcism. In fact, I had an email last week from the the, um, Archbishop of Canterbury's advisor in exorcism, asked me to complete a form, say how many major exorcisms have you done in the last five years? And I said, well, I haven't. In that time, I probably dealt with a hundred cases of deliverance. 
Now, that's something I wanted to ask about because I, I couldn't quite pin it down. What's the distinction between exorcism and deliverance? Okay, well, if someone has been involved in something quite dark and they there's a level of oppression within them, mm-hmm. we would pray a prayer, a specific prayer, in which we'd be asking God's blessing on them mm-hmm. and we would be requiring any forces of evil that are there to go. Again, it's very undramatic, and we would be depending totally on the sovereignty of God, on Jesus Christ, or the power of his blood and cross. We would say, in the name of Jesus Christ, I demand that whatever is there now actually leaves this child of God. And again, it's undramatic, um, and it doesn't tend to take very long. And if there are forces of evil there, they've got no option but to go, because God is sovereign. You know, there's no kind of prolonged and dramatic stuff as you see in the movies. It's actually very, very calm. And actually, I'm going to be involved in a case like that next Monday, as it happens. Um, I don't anticipate there being, a, the, well, there will be a clash of, 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 of spiritualities, a clash between God and forces of evil. But actually, God is sovereign, and these forces are actually pretty weak. It's when you try and do it in your own strength that you're perhaps in problems. That's fascinating. We, in fact, ne- next week, interestingly, when I'm involved in a prayer of deliverance, I've got, I shall have two or three um, uh, people with me who are members of my prayer team. And I'm actually going to conduct it in the context of Holy Communion. Because actually forces of evil can't cope with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And when one is celebrating Holy Communion, or Eucharist, whatever you're going to call it, actually the whole place gets sanitised and the forces of evil actually can't cope with that. So we were going to, we're going to celebrate the communion, we will have the bread and wine at that point, and we're just going to say, in the name of Jesus Christ, just go. Or as my old spiritual director said, actually when you're dealing with forces of evil, basically tell them to sod off. <laughs> I totally disrespect for them. Um, we'll be doing it quite liturgically as we are good Anglicans, and we'll be using some sort of liturgical prayers but actually, mm-hmm. we're simply saying to the forces of evil, in the name of Jesus, you're a waste of time, Kate. <laughs> so no no chanting in Latin, no incense or, or anything no, like no. that? Although some of my colleagues, you know, who are kind of Anglo-Catholics will use incense, actually. If that helps, that's fine. But actually, we're dependent upon the word of Christ and upon the power of the Holy Spirit and the sovereignty of God. Tim, do you ever have moments where you're like, this is absolutely mental what we're doing? I mean, I imagine trying to explain what you do to people must be a very confusing one at times. Well, interesting. I was uh, at a meeting in London last night and someone said to me, you know, what do you do? Well, I had a dog collar, so I could see what I did. Um, and what, what are you involved with? And I was involved, I said I was involved in uh, deliverance ministry. And they were fascinated, and, and it tends to be the kind of thing that if you discuss that at a dinner party, people will think, whoa, but I'm fascinated. <laughs> I, I love that kind of question because you have the opportunity to talk about the sovereignty of God, the way in which God time and time and time again turns up and actually transforms dark situations into situations where his kingdom is at work. And his kingdom is quite clearly alive and active and having been ushered in. So, Tim, have you seen The the Exorcist and, and what did you think of it? I'm old enough to have seen it when it first came out in 1974. <laughs> in those days, I was an atheist. I was fascinated by it, but thought, well, this is pretty crazy. This is just uh, a pretty crazy novel that's been made into a film. 
Mm -hmm. I didn't. I had that kind of rational worldview that said this stuff doesn't happen any longer, even if it ever did happen. And so my worldview at that time didn't take it seriously at all. Mm -hmm. I, I would have been amazed if someone had said to me back in 1974 that I would be a full-on Christian, let alone be a priest, and let alone be an exorcist. Um, <laughs> and to have reluctantly come to the conclusion that the church has, as a major part of its ministry, um, to actually confront powers of darkness and powers of evil. Um, and that's a significant bit of what I do today. Do you know what? This is so fascinating. You give me so much to think about. Really is a tricky one. I could talk to you for so much longer, but I've got to bring it to an end at some point. Tim, thank you so much for talking to us today. It's uh, it's a really chewy one to get, get our heads around. Okay, good to talk. So, Phil, that was Tim Hillier. What did you think? I, I mean... He's an actual exorcist. Mm -hmm. Like that's the thing that's getting blowing my mind right now. Like he he literally spends not most of his time, but quite a lot of his time, or in the past, telling demons to sod off. Mm -hmm. That's insane. I I, oh, I was fascinated. I was absolutely gripped. That might be for me. That has got to be the most fascinating and interesting interview yet. That's blown my mind. I th I thought you'd like that. I thought you'd think that. I'll be honest with you. Um, that interview entirely changed the direction of this episode we were gonna have someone to come and talk about the film the exorcist but unfortunately we couldn't get hold of him so i just put it out there on facebook do you uh, does anybody know anyone who wants to talk about exorcists and um one of my bosses got in touch with me and said um my father-in-law might be pretty good for that you know so that, yeah. oh yeah why is that well he's lit he's an actual literal real life exorcist <laughs> oh right yeah well i guess he'll do incredible like it's it's mental oh, you know it's blown my mind like mm -hmm. the fact that he used to be an atheist blow yeah. my mind yeah. The fact that he is so calm and collected, mm -hmm. despite the he's, fact that he is literally fighting the forces of evil. He's so <laughs> he's so English, isn't he? You know, exorcism. He, I he just love so, that. He's so he's so Church of England. It's ridiculous. <laughs> like, I'm so into think it. of it. Think of it this way, right? If all the Christian denominations were people, yeah. then Church of England would be the one who had to remain sober to drive all its mates home. You know, <laughs> that, that's how that's how like sort of chill and rational they they are. That's what they're what they're known that's, for. You know, do you know I've got a lot of time for that. I really do. Like, you know, do you know what? It, it's gonna sound really daft, but it reminds me of the same kind of like grace and calmness of my as my nana. <laughs> my mom, like my mum's my mum's my mum's mum i know that sounds so daft right but i don't know anybody with quite as much decorum as her i love that and like it just i, I don't know it just made me feel so safe listening to it you know what i mean like, i loved it mr hillier you are you seem like a graceful and gentle soul and i really appreciate listening to you talk yeah. that was incredible and it absolutely incredible. feels really called to what he's doing you know it absolutely feels well, like it's, yeah. his, it's his ministry it, you know absolutely i mean the fact that this again comes back to the fact that he was an atheist mm. that's what that's that's like the key point for me because obviously hello here i am <laughs> you know what i mean but like but like i, I just the fact that he, he went to go see the, the exorcist and was just like crazy book names for crazy film wild guys mm. and then he was and then like you know like what 30 40 years later he was like Actually, I'm now fighting the forces of evil. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just oh, mind blown completely. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Insane. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Amazing. Absolutely. Oh, Giles, you've you've knocked out the part with this one. I've got to say. Thank you. The daft thing is, it's the same thing with so many interviews. You turn the recording off and then they're like, oh, and by the way, here's an incredibly important and interesting thing. So I literally <laughs> turned, the, turned the mic back on and got him to re-record it when he talked about seeing The Exorcist as an atheist back in 1973. It's like, that's some important info, you know, because sometimes I talk to like some, some of our guests are more like obsessed with the um, film or TV show that we're yeah, looking at. Yeah. Some of them are specialists in their particular area. So with those kind of specialists, I don't always ask them about the text we're looking at in case they go, yeah, I haven't seen it. I don't know. Um, but <laughs> the, the, the thing about being an atheist and watching The Exorcist and then becoming... Becoming the title. <laughs> it's just astonishing. That's, oh, man. So what a story. I, it's, it's, it's weird because for... For me as a Christian, believing in a in the spiritual realm is something you, you take for granted. Do you know what I mean? But at yeah. the same time, um, this this is really where the rubber meets the road. Do you know what I mean? This is really where that faith kind of gets tested. Coming from a um, heavily um, fun, uh, charismatic, Pentecostal, and let's be honest, a little bit fundamentalist um, church, not a cult, but you know been flipping close um spiritual warfare and all this sort of stuff um was the sort of thing that get talked about a lot and since leaving that place i've been a lot more skeptical of it you know and having somebody come in and talk to it, it this is probably one of the few aspects of christianity that i approach with skepticism as like my default it took me a lot of while to really process that interview and i think the place i came to it was if someone is going to conduct an exorcism this is exactly the way you would want someone to conduct it do you know what i mean yeah, in like a, a absolute decorum grace rationality a safety conscious sober manner that tries to make it all as boring as possible you know he says you know i talked to my psychiatrist colleague we talked to this and we do that and then we just yeah. We just tell the the demons to just clear off. The, the, just the the sort of the clinical nature of the way that he conducts himself is mm-hmm. is to, like nigh on nearly almost boring. Him is <laughs> like just just astonishing to me. Like to be able that takes that takes a level of fearlessness. I don't mm-hmm. think I've I've ever fathomed before. You're dealing with something that is inherently quite frightening, but also is dependent and tests. A level of faith that you have to have in place to be able to do it. Yeah, that's 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 powerful. That's very powerful. Hundred percent. Now it's time for <gasps> finding the faith in the film. We're finding the faith in the film. We're finding the faith in the film. We're finding the faith in the film. I know. I think I feel like you've got to do the original trumpet sound because otherwise I feel bereft. Okay. 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 Hang on. Hang on. So, first of all, let's start with the biblical precedent for exorcism. For the purposes of this episode, when we refer to exorcisms, we're looking at the process of casting out demons. Now, Jesus does this all the damn time in the Gospels. There were... Oh, man. There was... Regular... (laughs) <laughs> Regular everyday exorcist, him, isn't it? I mean, not far off. <laughs> there were there were so many examples of him casting out demons that I struggled to narrow it down. But I thought I'd pick the most badass example. Yeah, well, we love okay. that. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read the whole section. So just because I I wanted you to get like all the context you could on this. Okay. So Mark five one to nineteen. On the other side of the sea, they arrived in the region of Gerasenes. 
hope that's right. Uh, Probably. <laughs> as soon as Jesus got out of the boat, he was met by a man with an unclean spirit who was coming from the tombs. Now, I looked into yeah. that because that sounded metal as hell as well. But apparently, <laughs> like tombs or caves, yes, you would have sort of people buried in them. But you would also have like really poor people living in them as well. You know, if they're quite sort of big and cavernous enough. This man had been living in the tombs and could no longer be restrained, even with chains. Though he was often bound with chains and shackles, he had broken the chains and shattered the shackles. Now there was no one with the strength to subdue him. Night and day in the tombs and in the mountains, he kept crying out and cutting himself with stones. Damn. Yeah, I know, right? When the man saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees before him. And he shouted in a loud voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you before God not to torture me. Now, just sidebar, that is a weird flex, isn't it? Like a demon sort of asking for something in God's name. That feels a little, if nothing else, out of character. Bit ironic, you know? Bit weird. Anyway. All right. Weird flex, but we'll take it. For Jesus had already declared, come out of this man, you unclean spirit. What is your name? Jesus asked. And now I have to do this in the voice. Okay. My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. (laughs) and he begged jesus repeatedly not to send them out of that region there on the nearby hillside a large herd of pigs was feeding the demons begged jesus send us to the pigs so that we may enter them he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and went into the pigs and the herd of about two thousand rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the water those tending the pigs ran off and reported this into the town and countryside and the people went out to see what happened When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by legion of demons sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it described what had happened to the demon-possessed man and also to the pigs, and the people began to beg Jesus to leave their region. He was getting into the boat. The man who had been possessed by the demons begged to go with him, but Jesus would not allow him. Go home to your people, he said, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. Now, hmm. like, that's I mean, a weird-ass story, right? It's not as cut and dry as some of the other stuff's like. You know, you know, I can believe the the whole kind of like, you know, the feeding of the 5,000. Like, that, for, for somehow mm-hmm. I believe that more. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, because that feels like a straight-up sort of like, yeah, well, son of God can perform well, miracles. Is, Do you know what I mean? Is, this is my point. It's it's things like this that reaffirm my, my faith that the, the Gospels are real and genuine. Because if I was writing this with my fiction writer hat on, there is some weird ass stuff I would not include in this. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, okay, fair play. You know, man possessed by demons, breaking chains and shackles and and lives in, in the tombs. That is consistent with a horror story genre. So that's the sort of thing you'd include. But the whole thing about, like, was it verse 10? He begged Jesus repeatedly not to send them out of the re- that region. Now, that's a weird word, region. Okay, because we would just think like geographical yeah, area. Yeah, that's exactly how I read that, and it to be honest, it threw me off completely. <laughs> it's like I was just there thinking like, look, don't ban me from you know Grasmere or whatever the <laughs> hell it is. Like I'm just there thinking like that's that's a, a what? <laughs> please don't kick me out of Altrincham. Ooh, please, Lord, don't send me to Stockport. Um, to be fair, I believe that you. I, I totally believe that you would already be saying that to, yeah, to, to yeah, God yeah, anyway. Yeah. So. Now I think when it says region. I think we can probably tweak that to mean plane of existence. I can 
buy that. I think they mean, like, please don't, like, send us to hell or out of darkness yeah. or, or whatever it is. <laughs> please don't send me back there. It's bloody awful. Yeah, there's, there's, you know? All they have is Starbucks. No cost us. Do you know what I mean? It's terrible. So uh, a legion in Roman terms is, has about 6,000 men in it. That's quite a, a massive number. And then the fact that they the, the demons leave the man and go into the large herd of pigs of about 2000. Now obviously let's let's even assume hyperbole. That's still going to be a lot, you know, even if we're rounded down. Yeah, even like 100 pigs. Mm. That's still quite a lot of pigs. Yeah. You know? And then obviously the people who are re- who seem like you can imagine they run off down to the the town see what happens and the headline is going to be man just drowned a load of our pigs, you know. Yeah. It's those little things like that <laughs> where it'll be it'll just be weird or it, so it's, it's such a weird story. I just imagine it now, just like, <laughs> all our pigs drowned in freak accident. Farmer Seth is on the scene saying, I were well naffed off. You know? Yeah, and these little these little things, you know, the man begged Jesus to go with him, but Jesus doesn't let me. He says, go home and tell the Lord what's done for you and what mercy has been shown to you. Now, Jesus is mission-focused the whole time. He's like, I've got to deliver somebody of demons, and I've also got to spread the word about me. I can't get around to everybody. He's going to be a brilliant example to his family, but he's going to be useless to me. If I sort of, if I go to a different town and say, hey, look, this guy had demons. Now he doesn't anymore. They'll be like... Yay. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas if you can take somebody where people already know that person and then they're, complete, they're, they're radically different, it's going to have much more of an impact, you know? Mm-hmm. In the age of sort of like social media as well, you're thinking it from that context. Like, you know, usually it'd be like, all right, yeah. got a video. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> that's what people are going to ask, isn't it? Like, and I, th- I guess it's similar to that. It's like, did you have any scribes nearby documenting what happened? And yeah. are they were are they trustworthy? Yeah, 100%. So there's precedent in the Bible for performing exorcisms. And Jesus gave us authority as Christians to cast out demons in his name. It's the in his name bit that's important. I think that, you know, the, mm. not doing it in your own strength, you know? So yeah, yeah. whilst an exorcism could be performed by any follower of Jesus, it's the sort of thing we'd strongly recommend only being undertaken by someone in full-time ministry, e.g. a priest, pastor, vicar, minister, whatever you want to call it. And even then, we'd probably defer to a specialist like Tim. Oh, Tim. Like, what a guy. It's I'm not so something you, you, you play around with, you know? Yeah, you don't, you don't, you don't mess with Tim Hillier. You know what I mean? <laughs> Especially if you're a demon. <laughs> now, can you remember how the demon gets into Reagan? It's through a Ouija board, right? Yeah, it's through a Ouija yeah. board. So, how would you describe a Ouija board? What I would describe as a type of game that requires a huge amount of suspension of disbelief mm-hmm. to be able to play it. And to get any kind of real satisfaction out of it, yeah, and, and and correct conditions as well. That's not a bad way of looking at it. It's a board with like numbers and letters on it, and each person puts uh, puts their hand on a glass. The glass moves around, and it's meant to be moving of its own accord. So I think there's two possible ways of looking at Ouija boards, and both ways end up with you come to the conclusion that Ouija boards are problematic as hell. So let's take a look at these two views, okay? Point one, Ouija boards are harmless. So let's assume for the moment that Ouija boards are nothing more than a board with some letters and numbers on it, and there's absolutely nothing more to it than that. Let's assume that you are an utterly rational empiricist that doesn't believe in communication with the dead or anything like it. 
Okay. But as these boards are usually played with more than one person, you can't guarantee that another person is exactly the same as you. Ouija boards can be easily used to scare people more credulous than yourself. Or in the case of things like spiritualists or mediums, it has the potential to exploit the emotional weaknesses of vulnerable people. So, yeah, yeah. Seen from this perspective, I feel really confident in saying that Ouija boards are a bad idea, even with my my rational hat on. Okay? Let's take option two, that Ouija boards are just evil. Okay? Okay. So... I don't know how much you know about this, but Christians don't believe in ghosts in the standard sense of the word. Okay. So while it's comforting to think that your dearly departed nan is right next to you and watching over you from beyond the grave, there's no real basis for that in scripture. Okay. It's funny that. That is funny because I've mainly heard that from spiritual religious people. Yeah. It's like, oh, well, you know, they've passed on to a better place and they're watching over you now for all eternity and, like, and they're looking up just like, hi, Gran. You know, just, you know, it's and I'm there thinking, like, I don't know. Obviously, I'm an atheist, mm. so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm completely too far gone. But, you know, like, it's... It, that that's, that's something I never knew. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting. So, if we look in, um, I think it's uh Luke 16 19 to 31 you might remember this one it's the the thing about the the rich man is in hell and he's asking um Lazarus to I think it's Lazarus to go back and warn his brothers and all the rest of it and Jesus is like or oh, it's either Jesus or God he's like no you can't <laughs> come back from from the devil that's not something you can can do you know we talked we talked about it in the christmas carol episode because yeah the christmas carol is basically charles dickens going yeah but what if you could though you know so it's like Mar- marvel's what if yeah yeah the yeah. dickens edition the dickens what if you know so luke 16 <laughs> 19 to 31 if you're looking for it that tells us that the dead can't return to communicate with the living so with this in mind, if it's not the souls of our dearly deceased or dearly departed talking to us, who's it going to be? Well, it's going to be some kind of higher entity, right? Like whether that be an angel or a demon, let's say, for example, just to give two sides of the coin. Mm-hmm. The answer I'm going for is is demons. <laughs> so, you know, obviously you're right, angels and demons, both supernatural, both a type of supernatural beings, we both we believe both have the the roots in all being angels originally, but you know when angels appear to you, they just appear to you. Do you know what I mean? They're usually, they're usually not making you dog up over someone. You know? <laughs> yeah. So. They're they're appearing in a dream, or they're just trying to freak you out, like they did with like Mary and Joseph. You know, yeah, the, yeah. considering that their opening line is always "Don't be afraid." You know, and they're, just they're like, "You've got more eyes than I've had op dinners." Like, come on, <laughs> <laughs> what's all this about? Yeah. So. To, to sort of cut it short, you're probably if if Ouija boards are real, if communicating with the other side is is real, then you're probably talking to demons. Okay, that's a good rule of thumb. I'm going to keep that in as mind. A, as a, yeah, as a good rule <laughs> of thumb. So this idea that demons can try to trick people by pretending to be a loved one, or even something from the side of good, comes from I think two Corinthians eleven fourteen. Paul says something like. Um, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light, you know. So mm. they they don't they they're under no obligation to be truthful with you, you know. That's 
in itself fairly frightening, isn't it? Yeah. Now, even if these spirits did good things for you, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have your best interest at heart at long term. So God is obviously opposed to you communicating with supernatural beings other than him because the potential for you to be led astray is really freaking high. Yeah, that seems fair to say. Like, if you think about it, if you're trying to communicate with something through a Ouija board, you don't know what's going on on the other side. You can't do um, DBS checks for a uh, spirit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, last time I checked, Ouija boards don't have caller ID. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. At least... In terms of communicating with God, he literally left us a book, you know, like, hey, guys, this is what I'm all about. You know, you know, you know yeah. where you are with him. Enjoy. You know what I mean? The best comparison I can think of it is this. Imagine you're a kid. And how do you feel about a parent giving you a sweet compared to a total stranger giving you a sweet? Well, I mean, let's go back to what we're always taught as kids. You know, just yeah. Don't talk to or accept gifts from strangers exactly the sweet tastes just as good either way but you have no idea what the intentions of the stranger are your parent probably just likes you a lot yeah, at least you'd hope like <laughs> or they just... and, and to be honest the stranger might too but maybe in a very untoward way, so. way. <laughs> <laughs> so i think we should really sort of take to this idea of exorcism with a hell of a lot of skepticism first of all believing in it in itself is a massive leap so let's sort of go through a process of elimination and be like, have you got any neural problems? Anything showing up on it, on a, on a head scan? Let's talk with, sit you down with a psychiatrist. Is there anything mm. else that it could feasibly be? And if it's that, let's go treat that. Basically, it's what happens in The Exorcist, the film as well, isn't it? Like yeah. they, they go through basically every test under the sun that they can possibly do. Yeah. Until they get to the point where it's like, well, actually, she might just be possessed. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't come from like an irrational place for her. That's She's just like, I want an explanation. Mm. And if the explanation is possession, then okay, I guess she's possessed. Better go get a priest. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, I, I, I suppose you would go down that route because when you've exhausted all options and your loved one's still ill or still acting completely abnormally, to put it lightly, yeah, you would, wouldn't you? Of yeah. course you would. So I actually found a quote from Father Thomas Birmingham and he was one of the consultants on The Exorcist and he actually has a bit part in it. He's one of the sort of older priests that they come and talk to. He's like the head of a diocese or something like that. Okay. His quote was, Demonic possession is an exceedingly rare phenomenon. The rite of exorcism is, in fact, the only Catholic rite in which the officiating priest is advised to take an initial stance of incredulity. Now, it's so weird that because as Christians, we're taught to believe and just have faith. And if our faith was the size of a mustard seed, we'd be able to do X, Y and Z. And I like the idea that the the standard process is if somebody comes to you and goes, help me, I'm possessed, you'd be like, are you though? Are you sure? It's very rare. Yeah. You know? It's it's mental because you are in a faith context, but you are applying a scientific methodology to it. I feel like it's one of the few places where faith and pure sort of scientific logic really do sort of coalesce. Mm -hmm. Because they have to. Because, you know, for it to actually be a possession, from how I understand it, because it is so rare to happen, yeah. it, it, it has to be something that it either is truly a possession or something we simply don't understand about science. Yeah, we're getting, we're getting some kind of like proper X-Files territory here, aren't we, you know? The way Tim Hillier talked about somebody's face being disfigured, something like that, it's going to be something that you're going to have to see it with your own eyes. You're, you're probably going to have to experience it yourself to truly believe it. That's the... Yeah, I 
when when he was saying her face was contorted, like you, your mind can conjure up whatever you want about that. You've seen contorted faces mm-hmm. in, say, like you know, in films or like you know, on on the news, for example, if someone's been very, very you know injured quite badly. But like, how does that work when you're possessed? Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, there's no context. Yeah. Now, whether you believe that exorcisms are real or not, I feel like the way to do one would have to be the way that Tim Hillier described it. But yeah. this is an area that has been absolutely rife for abuse. An exorcism has to be something that a person wants. It can't be something you force on someone because there's something about them that you don't like. And this leads me to conversion therapy and what seems to be called gay exorcisms, okay? okay. So a gay exorcism, (laughs) similar to demonic exorcism, is where an exorcist evokes homosexual demons or other spiritual entities from an LGBT individual. Individual. These exorcisms are intended to remove homosexuality from an individual. And reports of these exorcisms still occur in modern times, but are usually kept secret within the church. So I mean, if you've got to keep them secret, then there's your problem, you know yeah. what I mean? Uh, Reverend Dr. Roland Stringfellow, who's a minister in California, said he'd been subjected to anti-gay exorcisms himself in the 90s, which caused nothing but shame and embarrassment. In 2009, there's a case in Connecticut which was recorded on video where a 16-year-old boy is beaten in church for 20 minutes by a group of church leaders acting as exorcists shouting sacraments such as pray out the gay and foul queer, be not here. And then the most recent example I could find was on the BBC News website where a gay man said he was pressurised into conversion therapy by church until prayer would rid him of demons of homosexuality. Matthew uh, Drapper said he had continuing trauma after undergoing a form of exorcism at Sheffield St. Thomas Philadelphia Church eight years ago. Drapper, eight years ago? Yeah. So that puts it at what, like 2014? That's not long ago at all, that. Right? And Drapper is 33 now, so he would have been, what, 25 then? He was told to repeatedly shout a prayer during the 20-minute session, which left him cramping up and struggling to breathe. They told him to speak to the gay part of myself as if speaking to a wild dog coming up to me and for me to say, leave my body, he said. The people I was with told me they could see demons leave me and go out the window. In the following weeks, he said he felt like a skeleton, adding, it left me feeling totally empty and not myself really, like a part of myself had been pushed away, but was still very much there. So if you've made it this far into the podcast, well done. And I just want to say, there is absolutely categorically no excuse for conversion therapy it's embarrassing it is a stain on who we are it is a lot of time and effort spent on something that jesus literally never brought up do you know what i mean if you if you refer to the the scriptures and find out what jesus said exactly about uh, homosexuality you'll find he said nothing it's simply a lot of god-fearing men using and women using their faith as a means of justifying their own prejudices yeah their own human prejudices and that's even if you weren't of faith just it's still wrong it's still wrong to wish for someone to be or to try and force someone to be someone who they are not at their core and the daft thing is right doesn't work yeah (laughs) even if we put aside the morally reprehensible aspect to it it just doesn't work. You'll find that the people 
who say they have been cured of homosexuality, what they find themselves saying is that they have no longer part of the homosexual lifestyle and that they're married and all the rest of it, but they're not really saying, oh, and by the way, those urges completely left me. They'll just be forced to think that they're sort of like temptation from the devil or something like that, rather yeah. than it actually being just a completely normal and accepted part of who they are. Yeah. Do you know, like, I know that being a Christian requires a lot from you. For me, on a day-to-day -day level, it requires not smacking people in the face, even though they really flipping deserve it. And <laughs> as a Christian trying to evangelize people, I'm only okay asking people to do things if I'm willing to do it myself. Yeah. I can say that celibacy is a legitimate and decent way of doing things. But to say to somebody, no, you can never be in a loving romantic relationship with somebody for the rest of your life because there's something in you that is inherently wrong. I couldn't do it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I don't believe in that either. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I don't, I, I don't believe we should be really, you know, beating the living crap out of somebody because they said... Because they're a man and they also like men in a yeah. romantic and sexual way. Yeah, I just, I just don't really do. That's just not my day to day, you know, because <laughs> like, it's wrong. So. so interestingly, earlier this year, the UK government said it will ban conversion therapy for gay or bisexual people in England and Wales, but not for transgender people. Which seems like a, a fantastically glaring omission to me. Imagine if you are someone who is transgender who has physically transitioned. Mm -hmm. What do you do then? Do you know what I mean? Turn back. Like, that's not exactly how it works. <laughs> it's just so, so strange that that would be omitted. The amount of eyes that you have to have uh, on a bill like this, that's not an accidental oversight. Do you know what I mean? No. no Somebody that's, made was, a choice there. That was done on purpose. It's obviously done on purpose because it's so in the public eye, it's, it's almost laughable. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, there we have it. That is the end of Finding the Faith in the Film. We've got a fantastic <laughs> series coming up for you. We've got some absolute bangers. We're looking at classics like The Exorcist and The Omen, which is next week. And we're taking bow, bow, bow. you all the way up to modern stuff like Midnight Mass and oh, Sandman, yeah. which came out like a few weeks back. Please stay tuned for us to, to listen to this stuff. It's going to be absolutely awesome. It is. I can, I can say right now. It's going to blow your socks off. You're going to love it. I feel like I'm asking a dumb question here, but <laughs> Phil, have you had a good time? Mate, I got to actually listen to a real-life exorcist talk about his real life as an exorcist. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. Which is, by the way, I don't know if I mentioned it, is real. <laughs> it's just like blew my tiny brain into pieces I w I, that was the coolest thing ever so yeah, yeah thank thank you for that you've reacted in a, in a much more positive just, way than i thought you would be so i just um, i just yeah i don't know i don't know what it is but my brain just went that's cool and you're gonna love this I was like, all right, then. <laughs> i'm all for a bit of positivity do you know? <laughs> awesome thank you listeners we will see you next week for the omen bye, bye. Gordy Film is hosted and created by Giles Goff and Phil Coleman. Mixing by Phil, editing by Giles. Our logo was designed by Julie Walsh. And our theme tune was composed by Rick Lee. Waffle editing by Natalie Minica. Gordy Film is a Dask production. Please rate and review, unless it's a one star, in which case, meet up with Phil at a mutually convenient time and place. Strap him to a bed, making sure the restraints are firm, but won't hurt him. Then scream your review at him whilst a priest chants in Latin and throws holy water at him. 
He's not possessed or anything, he's just really like a lie down. <laughs> 